it's like people generations of people living together and building off of each other and sometimes people have complicated relationships stars have complicated relationships too <laughs> welcome back to office hours that was professor de los reyes this episode's wonderful guest who is going to tell us all about galaxies what we know up to the edge of what we don't know how we know what we know and importantly how the western academic field of astronomy has thought about the universe but the way that we do science the way that we do astronomy when we build our telescopes when we use words to talk about the universe that matters part of the human condition is that we make things in our image and sometimes that has caused us to do things like project settler colonial imperial and generally violent tendencies onto astronomical objects you'll see what i mean but this episode is also about how things don't have to be this way professor de los reyes likes to think of galaxies instead as communities with generations memory and intercommunity interactions. To hear all about this and more, lean back, grab your telescope, and get ready for Office Hours with Professor De Los Reyes. Hello, Professor De Los Reyes. Thank you for coming on to the Office Hours podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, could you please just briefly introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little about how you got into studying galaxies? Sure thing. So my name is Mia De Los Reyes. I'm the new assistant professor of astronomy mm -hmm. in the physics and astronomy department here at Amherst. And before this, I was in California, so I'm still getting used to the weather. <laughs> the first time it rained here, I was like, why is water <laughs> falling from the sky? <laughs> Um, but it's been great here. I really love working with the students here, and mm -hmm. teaching is really fun. I really enjoy teaching. Yeah, I'm glad. So it's been good so far. Mm -hmm. um, and then my path into astronomy was interesting. So I took physics in high school, and I happened to have a really good physics teacher, so I really liked it. Mm. And I also started sort of reading those, you know, popular science, popular physics books. Mm -hmm. And one of them was by the science writer named Casey Cole, who I think was a reporter at the LA Times. That should be fact-checked, probably. But, <laughs> but I'll Casey, put it in the notes. Yeah, so Casey Cole wrote this book, I still remember it, <laughs> called First You Build a Cloud. And it was about physics, but in a way that was kind of different from the, a lot of the very common popular physics books, like the ones by Stephen Hawking and mm. Brian Greene, like the ones that are all about, you know, black holes and mm -hmm. string theory and the shape of the universe. Casey Cole's book was much more about sort of everyday physics, but in a way that made me, it, it came across as very poetic to me. Mm. So she'd write about things like the fact that the speed of light is constant, which means that when you look at somebody, you're never looking at them in real time. You're always looking at them, you know, a, a tiny fraction mm. of a second delayed. And the idea that when you touch something, you're not really ever touching something. Right. The electrons in your hand are repelling the electrons in the table or in the water bottle or in somebody else. Mm -hmm. And at a you know, very subatomic level, who's, what, what electrons are really yours? Mm -hmm. And what are, you know, so the, the, those concepts in a very, I don't know, poetic kind of way, yeah. to me, were really fascinating. So I, I liked physics, and then I decided I was going to major in physics when I went to undergrad. I went to undergrad at North Carolina State University, so mm -hmm. a big public state school, and I just took a lot of physics and math classes. I knew what grad school was early on, and so that helped. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll do research, because that's kind of the thing that you do if you think you might be interested in grad school. Uh -huh. So I tried a lot of research projects. Mm -hmm. Most of them ended in 
not tears. Some of them ended in tears. <laughs> uh, some of them did not end well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But one of the ones that did go very well was the first time I did an observational astronomy project. Mm. And it was at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. So it was the very first time I'd been away from home for a long time. I was there for a summer. And my advisor happened to have a grandmother who was Filipino-Chinese. And so at one point, this advisor, we had never really talked much about, you know, our personal lives. Uh, We mostly just talked about research when we met. Uh But at some point, she noticed that I was kind of sad and homesick, because again, it was my first time away from home in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And she brought some food that her grandma had made, some Filipino food, Mm. and shared it with me. And that was like the moment when I knew that, oh my gosh, there's there's a place for people like me in this field. Like there's, mm-hmm. I could see myself belonging in this yeah. field. And so I've, I've never forgotten that advisor. Her name is Janice Lee. <laughs> Shout out to Janice. <laughs> um, and ever since then, I, yeah, I've been interested in astronomy. That's wonderful. Thank you for telling us that beautiful story. <laughs> yeah, so I invited you onto this podcast because I met you at a APAC faculty Mm -hmm. meet and greet, and you talked about your research in astronomy, but also that you're interested in talking about the language that is being used in astronomy. And for me, as like a humanities person with very little background in science, that perked up my interest and is an interesting topic, I think, to uh, explore and discover, even though we're going to problematize those two words, to explore and to discover. But to begin our conversation, I just googled the Milky Way briefly Mm -hmm. to prepare (laughs) myself. And I found this article called In the Milky Way Stars, A History of Violence. It's published in Quanta magazine. And I'll just read some sentences out. Mm -hmm. So it goes, the first hints of violence came when astronomers peering through the storied 200 inch telescope at Palomar Observatory found evidence in 1992 that the Milky Way was ripping apart some of the globular clusters in its halo. And then it goes on to talk about different projects throughout the last few decades. And then it talks about this project studying, I'm not exactly sure what they're studying, but they're studying other galaxies to learn about our galaxy, Mm -hmm. to offer an idea of what will happen to our galaxy in the future. And it says, quote, Our galaxy will eventually destroy two small nearby galaxies, the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are screaming across space in our direction. Our galaxy is already beginning to digest them. So I had not encountered such language because I have not been reading astronomy literature, but just from this article, I could see a little bit of what you're pointing out about the language that astronomers use. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, so, you know, that's from a relatively popular science magazine Mm -hmm. and not necessarily written by astronomers for astronomers. Mm -hmm. But I do think astronomers spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, these physical processes, and we spend a lot less time thinking about the language that we use to describe those processes and and the way that we do science in general. And so that's something that's always been really interesting to me, especially as I've gotten more into the field of astronomy and, you know, become a professor. It's become something that I've, I keep noticing more and more, and it's very hard for, for me to not see it everywhere as, as you have, right? I think it's, it's really funny because I think a lot of other astronomers were sort of used to it at this point. Mm-hmm. You looked at this article for a few minutes and already noticed this trend. So yeah. I think it's it's apparent. It's very much embedded in the field itself, mm-hmm. which is really it's an interesting it's an interesting dichotomy I think to live with for um, sure. But yeah, so I can talk a little bit maybe about what galaxies are. Yes, let's and, start with yeah. that. Galaxies are just big collections of stuff. So at their core, they're made up of dark matter. So that's matter that we know is there, but we can't see it. 
we can only see that the, the effects that it has gravitationally mm. on visible matter like stars and gas. But we're pretty sure that all galaxies live in halos, the sort of spherical structures of dark matter. Like the galaxy is the halo around the dark matter. The dark matter, the halo is the structure of dark matter, the spherical blob of dark matter, and okay. then the galaxy lives inside of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So our Milky Way has a dark matter halo that we think extends to on the order of tens to hundreds of times outside of the actual visible part of the Milky Way. And then the visible part is made up of stars and gas. And those phases are sort of constantly building on each other. Visible matter is constantly cycling between these two phases. Okay. So the gas is turning into stars, and then the stars are producing heavy elements and you know, living and shining. And then when they run out of fuel, they die and release those heavy elements back into the gas for the mm -hmm. next generation of stars to accumulate. I see. So that's one reason why I personally really like galaxies. I like this idea of sort of generations of stars building on each other. Mm -hmm. In some ways, galaxies remind me of forests almost. Mm. A forest is an ecosystem that is part of a larger ecosystem. But then inside of a forest, you have generations of trees that are living and dying. And the new generations are building off of the remains of the old generations. I don't know. There's something... Yes. I, I really like that idea of yes. galaxies as sort of... Not living, uh -huh. but certainly ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And they also interact with each other. Mm. So galaxies do, I don't want to say communicate, but they, <laughs> let, me, let me think of a way to phrase <laughs> this. So galaxies interact. Small galaxies can merge together to build up larger galaxies. And this is actually how we think that most galaxies formed, including galaxies like our own Milky Way. The current best picture that we have of how structure forms in the universe says that the smallest galaxies formed first. And then over time, they merged together and built up into more massive galaxies. And those galaxies merged together and built up into even more massive galaxies. And mm. then eventually you start getting very massive galaxies like our Milky Way. Okay. Can, I don't know how to phrase this well, but how mm -hmm. small can a galaxy be? Like This is actually a great question. <laughs> this is an open question in astronomy. A lot of people are trying to figure out, like it, within our Milky Way, for example, there are massive clouds of gas uh -huh. that are forming into stars right now. Right. And when they form into stars, they form into many stars all at once, sort of a community of stars. And those clusters of stars can be very close. They can be very massive. They can be close in mass to like an entirely separate, to, to an actual galaxy, like a mm. small galaxy. And so the question is, what is the dividing line between, what is the definition of a galaxy? Yes. And so we think that the first, well, hmm, this is still, a, like I said, <laughs> we don't know the answer yet. <laughs> We think that the smallest galaxies are on the order of 10,000 times, 100,000 times the mass of the sun in terms of just their stars. But the thing that makes it a galaxy is the dark matter part. So like all of them have a halo. Yeah, of we dark think so. Uh, most yeah, all galaxies were born in some kind of large dark halo. So I I'm imagining like the dark matter as like a border around a galaxy. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, you can kind of think of it as the dark matter, we think, is more concentrated at the middle, where the galaxy lives, and then it gets sort of more and more diffuse as you move away from the center. So is dark matter, like, the stuff between stars? That's a really good question. We don't know what exactly dark matter is. Okay. We haven't directly detected it. We just know that it's there, and we, ha we have a very strong... The theory that it's there is very, very strong. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that there is matter there that we just can't see for some reason. Uh -huh. And what it is, it's not clear. Some people think it might be a kind of particle that we haven't detected yet, mm -hmm. that we don't maybe, we haven't detected here on Earth at least. Mm -hmm. Some people think it could be black holes. 
Like lots of black holes. Lots of black holes. <laughs> <laughs> Some people think it could just be matter that's so dim. There, are, there's no stars to light it up or anything. Maybe we're just missing a lot of gas mm. that isn't lighting up. So a lot of theories out there. Interesting. And what keeps a galaxy together? Is it uh, always a black hole in the center or? It's the gravity of all of the things in the galaxy that are keeping it together. And most galaxies do at their center have a, a very massive, a supermassive black hole. Uh-huh. But black holes are actually, although they have very strong gravitational pulls close to the black hole, the farther away you get from the black hole, the more it's like any other thing. You could have a, a black hole the mass of this chair. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, I'm sitting, you know, a a little bit away from this chair. I wouldn't feel the gravitational pull of this chair mass black hole Uh unless I were really, really close to it. I see. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's actually another big mystery is we, we know that a lot of galaxies have these massive black holes at their center. And somehow the black hole and the galaxy are evolving together. They seem to be roughly the same size all of the time. Mm. Like as the galaxy grows, the black hole is also growing and they're growing at similar rates. But we know that, you know, they're not, they can't be that connected because again, the the massive black hole doesn't have very strong influence except very close to the center of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of an ongoing question is how, how do they know? (laughs) How do the galaxy and and black hole communicate with each other? And how are they growing at the same rate? Uh So anyway, lots of open questions. You're asking great (laughs) questions. You could be an astronomer. Um, let's go more specific to the Milky Way Mm -hmm. now. Could you describe the Milky Way as a galaxy and like, how did it come to be? So I like to think of it as kind of like a fried egg. It has a a disc Mm -hmm. and it has spiral arms. Maybe fried eggs don't have like spiral (laughs) structure in the egg, but there's a flat-ish disc Uh and that's where we live. We live somewhere maybe halfway between the yolk at the center Mm -hmm. and the edge of the fried egg. (laughs) That's where the sun is located in the Milky Way. And then at the center, there's this yolk, this sort of what we call the the bulge, which just has a lot of, it's like a spherical structure of stars. Uh, And then outside of the, the fried egg analogy begins to break down here. Uh, Because the Milky Way is sort of suspended in this halo, a stellar halo, which is not as dense as the rest of the Milky Way, Mm. but there's a lot of stars. And we think that the stellar halo is being built up by small, what we call low-mass dwarf galaxies. These are Mm. galaxies that are much smaller than the Milky Way. And so this is where the, the article that you mentioned at the beginning, that's where that comes in. So the idea is that these small galaxies are being assimilated into the halo of the Milky Way and building up the Milky Way's stellar halo. And we see that happening. So I guess you can think of, so there's a fried fried egg floating in space. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then maybe there's a spherical structure of like rice around it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm used to eating fried eggs with rice. So. Yes, I love fried eggs with rice. Um, so that's sort of how I envision it. And the rice grains are sort of like Floating uh-huh. in space. And, and the rice is stars. a spherical halo, yeah, whereas exactly. the disc is like flat in yeah, the middle of it. Exactly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And like the egg yolk part, the nucleus, is mm-hmm. it bulging in a sphere because of the supermassive black hole? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And again, we're not entirely sure. We know that very close to the black hole, there are stars moving very fast in all directions because of the, the supermassive black hole near the center. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of theories for how we got the bulge and the disc shape. The main thought is that our Milky Way probably started out as a bunch of these small dwarf galaxies that merged together. And over time, they built up this inner, uh, well, we are beginning to run into 
questions that I don't know the answer to. So maybe we should cut this part. <laughs> no worries. It's a, no, it's a really good question. Like, which was built first, the bulge or the disc? We know the bulge is mostly made up of older stars. And then the disc is mostly made up of younger stars. The okay. disc is where a lot of the star formation is happening. Mm-hmm. So we're still trying to piece together the exact history of how each of these parts came to be. It's, it's complicated. There's a lot of, of moving parts in the Milky Way, which is really interesting. And, and we're very sure that mergers of galaxies played a role because we see it happening now in the stellar halo. We see small dwarf galaxies coming in. And then as they interact with the Milky Way, the gravity of the Milky Way is stretching them kind of like taffy. And so you can see streams of stars in the halo that are being produced by these small dwarf galaxies. How does the gravity of this Milky Way stretch? Yeah, that's a good question. It's like tides. Uh, The way that tides work on Earth, the moon is going around the Earth, and the moon pulls more on the water close to it than on the other side. And it's kind of the same thing. It's a tidal effect. So as a small dwarf galaxy enters the gravitational well of the Milky Way, gravity pulls on it more at the front Mm. than at the back, and that sort of stretches it out into a long stream. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now that we've talked in very vague terms about what we know, let's talk about how we know this. And I think astron- galaxy archaeology, what's the term? Oh, yeah, galactic archaeology. Galactic yeah. archaeology maybe has something to do with this. So yeah, could you tell us yeah, a little bit so about that? This is one of the things I study. It's this field called galactic archaeology. The idea is because, as we mentioned, galaxies are kind of like forests with generations of, of trees or stars mm-hmm. building off of what past generations left behind. And in some ways, that's not too different from what humans do, right? Mm-hmm. Humans live and then we die. (laughs) We live and we make stuff and then we die. But the stuff we made lives on past us and then the next generation builds off of the things that were left behind. Mm -hmm. And so what archaeologists do here on earth is, you know, they'll, based on what previous generations left behind, they'll try to figure out how previous generations of humans lived and died. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of the same thing with galactic archaeology, except And instead of, you know, a shard of pottery or whatever, what we're looking at is the heavy elements, the elements of the periodic table that were made by stars. So as stars live, they're fusing light elements like hydrogen into heavier elements, like, well, all kinds of things. Our sun is currently fusing hydrogen into helium, Mm -hmm. but other stars, more massive stars, will produce heavy elements like iron, or my favorite is manganese. The whole part of my thesis was on manganese, and so I would always go to talks and I'd say like, I'm a fanganese of manganese. And then because it turns out that all astronomers have terrible senses of humor, everyone would be like, oh. <laughs> That's amazing. But yeah, so we can use the manganese left behind by previous generations of stars to learn about you know, what those stars were like and how they produced that manganese. So that's the idea behind galactic archaeology. And so now it's a thing that people are using to piece together the history of the Milky Way, to try Mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, how did the bulge part form? How did the disk part form? How did other galaxies play a role in building up the halo of the Milky Way? Yeah, so that's what galactic archaeology is. It's a lot less exciting. We don't get to go out and do cool (laughs) field work. It turns out you can, you know, go out and, I don't know, lick a shard of pottery. Yes. That's a thing that I've, I've recently learned that archaeologists and geologists do. It's called lick and look. Yes, I, I was studying abroad in Rome last uh-huh. semester, and a big part of it was archaeology. Mm-hmm. And it was like, this tufa tastes like this. Yeah. This tufa <laughs> tastes like this. And yeah. the nearer we are to Pompeii and the volcano, the taste changes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, we can't do that with stars. <laughs> we can't go out and lick a star. Mm-hmm. And so we have to get all this information from light instead, from the light that's coming from these stars. 
But that's the general, it's the same idea. We're Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, some stars closer to some regions will have different chemical patterns. And we can try to use that to sort of age date where the star came from Mm -hmm. or figure out maybe it's related to other stars that have similar chemical patterns. And then where did those stars come from? That kind of thing. I talked a bit about galaxies as forests. Maybe the, the better analogy would have been galaxies as communities, mm. right? It's, it's, it's like people, generations of people living together and building off of each other. And sometimes people have complicated relationships. Stars have complicated relationships too. <laughs> but also, I think importantly, communities don't exist in a vacuum, mm. right? They interact with other communities. And it's the same thing with galaxies. So the idea that small galaxies can come together and merge and form a larger community like the Milky Way. That's the framing that I like to think of galaxy formation and evolution in, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you're looking at the heavy elements left behind mm-hmm. by a star, for example, would it be by a star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from that, I can see how like you could figure out what the star was maybe mm-hmm. and what processes it went through to leave behind those elements. Mm-hmm. But like, how do you know, how can you tell or like, what do we know about how they interacted with each other and what the star's role was in, in the community? Yeah, that's a good question. So, for example, um, manganese is formed by what's called a white dwarf. So it's what will remain of our sun eventually when it runs out of fuel to mm-hmm. burn. It's sort of the dead stellar core. That's a little morbid sounding. It's the the left behind core after the star has finished actually creating energy. Mm. And so most white dwarf stars will just sort of cool forever. They're just hanging out. They're not making new energy. They're just chilling. But some white dwarf stars, when they live near other stars, we we think a lot of stars actually, our sun is kind of unique in that it doesn't have a binary partner Mm. or even a triplet or many stars are born in groups. So it turns out if you have a white dwarf that's in a binary pair with another star, the other star can dump some mass onto, dump some, you know, gas onto the white dwarf. And this can eventually cause a chain reaction that causes the white dwarf to explode. So that's the kind of stellar interaction that is difficult to model. Like, we still have a lot of open questions about how exactly this explosion works. Mm. Like, we know that in general, if you can get a white dwarf to explode, it matches the observations of certain explosions that we see in the sky. But the exact nature of that explosion, like, how massive was the white dwarf when it it exploded? And what, what kind of star was the companion star? We don't know the answers to those questions yet. And so this is the kind of thing, studying something like manganese, which is caused by these white dwarf explosions. We think that, for example, more massive white dwarfs will produce more manganese and less massive white dwarfs will produce less manganese. Mm -hmm. So if you measure the amount of manganese, that tells you something about the physics that was going on in that explosion. Right. And it also tells you how it interacted with the stars next to it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the stars that usually form in groups, they would orbit around each other or is yeah. it usually a leader and then yeah no this is a the other stars question. orbit around the main star yeah so in a binary system they'll orbit around each other that's pretty straightforward mm-hmm. um it gets more complicated the more the more things you add i see so typically well so there's this i don't know if you've ever read this is a book called the three-body problem mm-hmm. it's a sci-fi series which is very good it's by a chinese author anyway uh-huh. um it's sorry. Oh, I love that series so much. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. But it's, it's based on the idea the three body problem is if you have any three masses and you and you just let them run, like do stuff and gravitationally interact with each other, it actually becomes impossible to analytically calculate what happens 
because it's so chaotic. It depends so much on the exact position and exact velocity of each of the three bodies very early on. And if you slightly change one of those initial conditions, you'll get a totally different outcome. Hmm. So yeah, it actually becomes very complicated very quickly. And so there are people who spend all their time trying to model what we call n-body simulations. So putting together, you know, some number of masses like stars and just trying to see what happens. Does it get more complicated the more bodies there are or is three like uniquely Yeah, it can it gets more and less complicated at the same time. So if you have enough stars in one place, for example, uh, that are gravitationally bound to each other, then the combined gravity of all the stars will typically keep most of those stars bound together in some kind of spherical mm. shape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the stars are moving around in this spherical distribution, but they're all kind of still there. With three bodies, it actually becomes a lot more common that two of the bodies will end up ejecting the other one. <laughs> it's, a whole, it's a whole thing. It turns out that actually in our solar system, I think Mercury is in a pretty chaotic part of the solar system disk, and there is a solid chance that we will lose Mercury. Oh. Yeah. Like it'll, through gravitational interaction, it's not super stable. So it might just eventually eat itself out of the solar system. Yeah. And okay. And so it's not like when there's not a bunch of stars that it will form into a sphere, but when there's more than two stars, that's when it's chaotic. Yeah. So between and two and a lot of stars, <laughs> that part in the middle is like, it's pretty, we don't fully know what happens. Yeah. This, this is like if two people hang out, they're having a good time. If three people hang out, someone might get left behind. Right. If Actually, you have a yeah. big party, exactly. then everyone's having a good time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so stars are like people. And I, I really like this analogy. I think it's, I mean, obviously stars are not living in the same way as people right. are. And it's sometimes silly to anthropomorphize things that are probably just following physical laws. But it is really interesting yeah. how much of it is reflected in you know our daily experiences as humans. Mm-hmm. You've said to me in our preparatory mm-hmm. meeting that because galaxies are like communities and you find it really interesting to study it in this way, sometimes the, the these violent terms that astronomers use are, are a bit weird or upsetting or things you want to avoid. Yeah. So could you tell us about some of these terms? Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned, I, I really like the article you brought. I think it's a great example of, you know, being shredded apart or ripped apart, like galaxies screaming across space yes. or whatever. That's, you know, obvi- that was written for a more general audience than astronomers. But even in the astronomy community, there are terms like galactic cannibalism, like the idea that a galaxy will assimilate a smaller galaxy into it and eat oh. the other galaxy. Yeah, or galactic strangulation, which is the idea that if a small galaxy interacts with either a more massive galaxy or a collection of galaxies, it will get its gas supply, like its external gas supply, shut off and strangle the galaxy so it can't form any more stars. And I kind of think these are just unnecessarily violent terms. (laughs) I don't necessarily know why we have to use words like these to describe galaxies. Like, I I know we just talked about anthropomorphizing these physical systems. I think there's value to doing that. I think it can inform the way that we think about them. But also, so why are we thinking of them in such violent terms? Like, the idea of galactic cannibalism, I really don't love this idea that a small galaxy is losing its identity to a more massive galaxy. Mm -hmm. Because what's really happening is these small galaxies are coming together to build something bigger than themselves. And to me, that framing is much more in line with what's actually happening. We know that the small galaxies formed first. You know, it wasn't like these massive galaxies are waiting around for small galaxies to eat up. It is in a lot of ways reflective of 
the roots of mainstream Western astronomy as it's practiced today. Astronomy is very much tied to colonialism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. Like some of the greatest astronomical discoveries were made specifically during the age of exploration when Western powers were going around and trying to navigate the globe in order to extract more resources from other places and build empire. So they were making astronomical observations in order to like navigate. To right, to navigate across the sea, people, you know, sailors would use right. the sky, the night sky. And obviously it didn't have to be in search of empire. There are many cultures, indigenous cultures, who've also used the night sky to mm -hmm. tell time and to navigate across sea routes. But there was sort of this confluence of the Western Renaissance, the Renaissance of scientific exploration, the development of the Western scientific method as it's practiced today, and the Age of Empire. And they very much fed into each other. And so, for example, a lot of the astronomical constellations, the classical ones in the Northern Hemisphere, many of them are named from Greek constellations because the Greeks were, well, they recorded a lot of their findings very well, but they certainly weren't the first people to see those constellations or discover them. Mm -hmm. You know, we have records from China going back literally millennia, maybe not millennia. Millennium. <laughs> Millennium. <laughs> going back hundreds of years. Yes. Right? Even before some of the Greek records, we have records from the Middle East. So the Arabic astronomers were some of the most sophisticated astronomers of the time. Uh, but because, you know... <laughs> When, for example, Spain was trying to find ways to circumnavigate the globe to get to the Spice Islands, because Portugal held the Eastern Hemisphere and Spain was allowed to conquer the Western Hemisphere. So they kept trying to find ways to go from Spain westward and get all the way around the world to the Spice Islands. That was the reason for, you know, Christopher Columbus's mission mm -hmm. and for Magellan's mission. And this is, I think, where... You know, the history of astronomy becomes more explicitly tied with the history of imperialism. So not only did Magellan use the stars to navigate, but eventually things got named in the sky after Magellan. Mm -hmm. So Ferdinand Magellan is credited as the first person to circumnavigate the globe. He did not. He actually died. He led the voyage that <laughs> was the first to circumnavigate the globe. Ironically, he died in the Philippines. My family's from the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up hearing about Magellan as sort of this, like, villainous character. Mm. And the person who killed Magellan, the, there's a native chief in the Philippines, Lapu-Lapu, who is now sort of revered as sort of the first, one of the first national heroes of the Philippines. <laughs> because by killing Magellan, he delayed Spanish colonialism on the order of decades. So anyway, <laughs> that was a bit of a tangent. So Magellan was the first to sort of, well, he wasn't even the first Western explorer to go so far south. So other... Italian explorers and before them Arabic explorers had mapped out the location of these two galaxies in the southern hemisphere. Uh, they didn't know they were galaxies at the time. They were just like, oh, there are some weird cloud-looking blobs in the sky. Mm -hmm. And those eventually became known as the Magellanic Clouds. And then on top of that, so I, I learned about this when I started getting into the in, into the field of astronomy and studying galaxies. And I was like, Magellan, Magellanic Clouds, this is... Kind of familiar. And then yeah. I read about the history and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Why are they named after I, this I guy? I remember this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then I did more digging. It turns out that uh, there are actual records of Magellan's voyage. So one, one person on the voyage was actually being pretty good about recording what happened. Mm -hmm. And in this you know, primary document, he mentions that the Magellanic expedition stopped in what is now Patagonia in Argentina. And Magellan actively enslaved people there. He like kidnapped people, put them in shackles, and then brought them on the boat and stole them from their people. And then in Guam, 
Magellan killed a bunch of people and burned a bunch of houses. And then he got to the Philippines, again, killed people, burned houses, mm-hmm. tried to convert people to Christianity, succeeded in some ways. That was really the, the, the original arrival of Christianity to the Philippines and then died in the Philippines. So it was kind of shocking to me. Like I knew about the stuff with the Filipino history because right. I'd grown up hearing that from my parents. But then learning that Magellan also did all of these terrible things. And there's a record of him actively enslaving people and mm. actively murdering people. He continues, and he wasn't even an astronomer, and he no. continues to be honored in the names of these galaxies. And it's not just the galaxies either. So there are NASA missions named after him. There's a NASA mission, uh, a probe that was sent to Venus. And the idea was that, oh, it's going to be the first probe to go around Venus, to Uh. circumnavigate Venus. And so that was the analogy. And if you look at sort of the original NASA documents explaining this choice, they keep going on and on about how Magellan was really overlooked for his time. (laughs) He was misunderstood. It, it has very crazy. like yeah it has very like we can fix him vibes i don't know <laughs> yeah and so so nasa has honored this guy um there are telescopes named after him uh-huh there are martian craters named after him there's a lunar crater named after him uh, on earth there's the magellanic strait is the name of the the geographic strait that he sailed through it's between tierra del fuego it's like the very southern edge uh, tip of argentina there are penguins there. They're called the Magellanic Penguins. Like, that's a whole just species of penguin. Is, yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> and this guy didn't even make it all the way around the world. Like, he didn't do what he's famous for. <laughs> so to me, this has always just been, like, a kind of wild thing. And again, I think this is one of the more explicit ways in which astronomy is, the history of astronomy is directly tied to imperialism and capitalism. We still see ongoing issues with where telescopes are located. Professional astronomers like to build telescopes on mountains because they're, they have ideal conditions for observing the sky. Mm-hmm. But mountains are also important to a lot of people, especially indigenous communities. And so there's been this ongoing debate in Hawaii over the 30 meter telescope, which astronomers want to build on Mauna Kea. And there's been a long history of relatively poor steward- stewardship by previous telescopes that astronomers have put on, on Mauna Kea. There's been a revival in like native Hawaiian culture mm-hmm. and language, and I think that's incredible. And as I think this this identity is being revisited by more and more native Hawaiians, there's been more and more opposition to you know foreign astronomers mm-hmm. coming in and being like, we want to build stuff on this mountain, mm-hmm. which is sacred to you. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. This issue of TMT, the, the 30 meter telescope on Mauna Kea, was the thing that really got me thinking about the ways that we do astronomy. Astronomers like to think of ourselves as, oh, the the stuff we study, it doesn't affect people on Earth. You know, no one dies (laughs) if I... One of the, honestly, one of the reasons I went into astronomy was I thought for a while about going into something like being a doctor Mm -hmm. or, you know, doing something that would impact people more. But then I thought, in astronomy, you know, nobody dies on the operating table. (laughs) Like, (laughs) in some ways, it's, it's sort of a relief to do something that isn't going to directly affect people. Right. And, you know, the the universe is, if we get something wrong, like if I, if I put a wrong statement in a paper, the only one that's going to be embarrassed about it is me. <laughs> like the universe doesn't care. Right. Um, and that can be comforting, but it can also be isolating. Also because of the modern nature of academia, we don't have ties to the land anymore. So we're moving around, we're studying stuff in the sky. So we think, okay, we're not, you know, we're not in the defense industry. We're not, you know, doing things that are actively harming people. Mm -hmm. So it's fine. Like we're, we're just out here. We're, if we're pursuing knowledge in its purest form Mm -hmm. about the universe, what's more noble than that? 
But the way that we do science, the way that we do astronomy, when we build our telescopes, when we use words to talk about the universe, that matters. And I think a lot of astronomers are beginning to think more about that. Like I see it in the astronomy classes I teach here at Amherst. Honestly, the astronomy classes at Amherst, the, the students at Amherst have been a really refreshing change of pace for me. <laughs> Having people who are willing to think about the ways that science intersects not just with other science disciplines, but with history and with culture and society, like that is really important. Yeah. I think it's really important to break down this illusion we have of science being this neutral, cross-cultural possession of humanity. Like with the with astronomy and the stars, it's like, oh, well, all of humanity can look up and see the stars. Like this isn't a specific cultural thing. This isn't a Western power thing. You know, anyone can look at the stars. But that that's an illusion we have. When in reality, as you say, the field has been so dominated by Western knowledge, Western names, and it has erased so much knowledge that we've had, that other cultures have had, you know, it's taken over what we call things, what we say when we talk about science, especially with this language of colonialism that just seeps into our language when we talk about science in any form mm -hmm. of like, we want to discover something. We discovered something, we're going to name it after ourselves, we're going to lay claim to it. Yeah, exactly. And that has influence how we think about non-human things and the subjects that we're studying of saying that a bigger galaxy has taken over a smaller galaxy, right, has right, exactly. eaten up and consumed and taken a smaller galaxy as part of itself uh, in a very colonial, imperial way of subsuming all smaller cultures into this big one homogenous yeah, power. Yeah, exactly. When that's not what the stars are doing and that's not what is physically happening, but the idea we have of how we do science and what science is for right. has made it so that we're describing the science badly, we're, we're communicating the science badly. I think so, yeah. I think there's very much uh, astronomers and, and physicists and scientists in general, <laughs> we like to think we're objective. <laughs> we're perfectly rational beings, and that's just not true. We ha we All of us have a lens through which we examine the rest of the world, and the the mainstream astronomy lens has very much been shaped by these Western colonial, settler colonial imperial influences. And that's something that I, I think about a lot. And it, it's true even within the field of professional astronomy, right? What does it mean that we talk about galaxies harass... Oh, that's another term I didn't even get to. Galaxy harassment. Oh. So when a galaxy enters a cluster of galaxies, it gets hara tidally harassed <laughs> by the other galaxies. Why do we use that language, especially in a field where har harassment is a thing that happens in the field of professional astronomy? Like with the rise of the Me Too movement, it's been become a, like very clear that, you know, astronomy is not immune from these very human concerns. And I don't, yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of mind boggling when you think about it, but it is, it's maybe not that surprising. Disappointing, but not surprising. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about where we go from here. Yeah. We've highlighted all these issues, all these things we don't like about the words being used and how we think of stars interacting and, and projecting our own human mm -hmm. flawed ideas and ideals onto stars that don't have these colonial mm -hmm. ideas. But in your classes and in, in how you write now, what things are you mindful of and how are you trying to change the field in a way that we think about space and do astronomy in a way that is not so colonial or maybe not even so yeah. concerned about 
us and our issues and yeah so the, the class i'm teaching now for example i'm teaching this class on observational techniques mm-hmm. we get to use the telescopes that are on the rooftop of the science center for many people it's sort of the first step into what hashtag real astronomers do or whatever <laughs> But in that class, we also have a unit where we talk about how telescopes, because that's what we're really studying, we're studying how to use telescopes. We talk about how many professional telescopes are on sacred lands to many communities and how the astronomy community has interacted historically and in the present with indigenous communities around the world. The physics major now has a requirement of, what's the full title of the class? Physics and Astronomy in History and Society, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's, again, talking about, you know, how we do science and not just the science itself. And I think that is a class that I'd wish I'd had. So here at Amherst, I think, it seems like students have been responding really well to it. I guest lectured, before I even got to Amherst, I guest lectured at one of the classes for this physics and astronomy in history and society class. Mm -hmm. And the discussions were really incredible. These are students at Amherst who are physics and astronomy majors, so they don't even spend most of their time taking humanistic classes but the discussions were far more thoughtful and nuanced than many that I've had with professional astronomers (laughs) so I was really impressed by that I do think that there's a growing awareness especially among younger astronomers and early career astronomers there's more awareness than there's ever been before about the ways that the professional astronomy community interacts in the same way that galaxies interact (laughs) with other communities Mm-hmm. and the implications that that might have. I'm part of this group of astronomers that's working to rename the Magellanic Clouds. Mm. So we're hoping to bring a resolution to the International Astronomical Union, which is like the UN of astronomy, I guess. <laughs> it's similar to the UN in that has, it has very little power to actually enforce <laughs> things. But we can, we can at least hope to make a recommendation that people stop using the name of the Magellanic Clouds mm-hmm. and maybe replace it with something that is a little more representative of what they actually are, which is not anything to do with Magellan. Right. It's, not also, it's also not a new thing. Like People have been talking about this for a while. NASA has begun to rename other galaxies. There was one galaxy known as the Sombrero Galaxy because it kind of looked like the rim of a hat. I see. And then NASA was like, well, maybe we shouldn't call it the Sombrero Galaxy. And so they've, they've begun to retire the use of these you know, catchy common names. NASA has also started naming planetary bodies after... So for a long time, they were named after, you know, Greek or Roman gods. Yeah. And so now we've begun to name objects in the solar system after other cultural mm. deities, which I think is a it's a nice nod to the yeah. idea that astronomy is for everyone. The night sky should be for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think we're finally catching up to that <laughs> here in the United States, at least, yeah. and in, in Western cultures more generally. Uh-huh. And in your own writing and teaching, when you have to write about galactic strangulation like yeah. how do you deal with that and... i don't <laughs> i well i don't i don't use those words uh-huh. i find other ways to say it i think some of those phrases are beginning to be phased out also um people will say it's more jargony sounding but they'll say things like hierarchical formation mm. to discuss how you know galaxies will interact uh will, will build up into bigger systems um galaxy mergers that's much more neutral than like Galactic cannibalism. Yes. Galaxy quenching is the process of turning off the galaxy's star formation by shutting down its gas, by preventing it from getting more gas. Mm -hmm. So I think those, there are far more neutral terms. And I think, you know, it's not hard to avoid them. You just sort of have to be aware. 
that there, <laughs> there, there are other options. Yes. Uh, this might be too small of a question, but like, do you, do you find these conversations happening if you're working with an editor of a journal or something, or is it mostly on the part of the author or scientist herself too? Yeah, I think it's typically, astronomy is pretty chill <laughs> about letting individual authors and individual, individual scientists name things the way, the way they want. Mm. So the International Astronomical Union has a committee of like a naming and designation committee but they mostly focus on like catalog names and mm-hmm. they're mostly focused on stars and not necessarily on galaxies. And so most galaxies have like a very boring catalog name, which is like some string of numbers and letters. Uh-huh. And you know, that might be more boring, but it's also perhaps a better way to yeah. describe these galaxies. There's so many and they're all so different yeah. and giving some of them special names is a little, it also changes the way that we think about the science. Like for a long time, a lot of our understanding of, small galaxies has been very limited to the galaxies immediately next to us because galaxies are small galaxies are fainter and they're harder to see further away and so all the galaxies relatively close to us have nice names (laughs) but then the ones farther away from us are like ngc 6822 or whatever (laughs) not to pick on ngc 6822 it's a great galaxy but (laughs) but it also it's it actually reflects like an actual bias in the scientific literature the fact that we've been our detailed observations have been very limited. And I think we're also entering a scientific era where we're beginning to bridge this gap between the nearby universe and the distant universe. And so maybe that will also provide impetus for the community to rethink how we name things more broadly. And there you have it. Thank you so much to Professor De Los Reyes for coming onto the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything we mentioned, as well as an op-ed Professor De Los Reyes wrote about renaming the Magellanic Clouds. There's a 90% chance I'll get another episode out before we break for winter, so stay tuned for that. And until then, I hope you get to see some beautiful stars at night. Take care and goodbye!